Well, good morning, church. Are you guys awake? All right, all right. Man, wow, that's great. I loved, Aaron, you pulling out the, uh, the Keith Green song, Oh, Lord, You're Beautiful. That was so cool. Woo! I like those. Well, if you've been following along, we are continuing this morning in our series through the Gospel of Mark. And I know we're only in chapter two, but haven't the messages been so, so amazing? I know they have, right? At this pace, at this pace, we'll probably finish up somewhere uh, sometime after summer next year. Uh, going pretty slow here. Uh, growing up, both of my parents worked full time. Uh, and so my brother and I were at home with no supervision. Now, yes, we loved it. <laughs> uh, but get this, it started, they, they started leaving us at home when I was eight and my brother was only five. <laughs> I know, isn't that crazy? We would never do that. I would never think of doing that now, leaving my son uh, at home at that age. But in 1976, it was totally safe. I mean, so was not wearing seatbelts, smoking on airplanes, all of that. Um, but at the time, back there in the, uh, the mid-70s, right, there was this uh, TV series that, that my family really loved. And it was about a trucker and his pet monkey named Bear. Yes, it was called BJ and the Bear. If you're old, you remember that. <laughs> and so one day, my brother, he just loved this show. And he got so excited after watching one of the episodes that he, he, he just wanted to call my mom at work. And uh, my mom worked in a storeroom, so she didn't even have her own office. And, and so when he calls up, he's like, May I speak with Ann Driscoll? And they're like, okay. Uh, paging Ann Driscoll, paging Ann Driscoll, you have a call on line one. And so my mom picks up the phone and she says, hey John, how are you doing? Is everything okay? And with all sincerity and honesty in his voice, he said, mom, can I have a monkey? <laughs> My mom was so furious. She did not act very Christian-like at this moment. She couldn't believe that she was getting interrupted at work with such a ridiculous question. Well, if you've been following along and if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Jesus loved questions. He loves them. Just in the Gospels alone, right, we see that Jesus was asked 183 different questions. And he answered a lot of questions too. And what I love about Jesus, right, is it doesn't matter he, uh, what kind of question it was. He always responded in, in love. Jesus, Jesus never got ticked off at questions. He never got defensive. He... Uh, he never was annoyed. Jesus always used questions as teachable moments. And what's interesting, this is a good reminder for parents, right, when we get questions. 
Respond like Jesus. <laughs> we don't always do that. Uh, but if, if we're, when we're going through the, the Gospel of Mark, and what's interesting about uh, the author, John Mark, is that he uses this same rhetorical tactic that Jesus used. He takes four questions that Jesus used, and he uses them in turn to teach us about the kingdom of God. And let's look at them. Where there's four of them, and they'll be up on your screen. And the first one was in verse 7. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Sounds more like an accusation, really, than a question. Uh, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then number three, which is found in verse 24, and that's what Mark touched on last week, and that is, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And this week, we're going to look at verse 18. How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So let's look at that together. If you have a Bible, open to, uh, to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, we have one underneath your chairs. And let's read that together. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples... And the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Don't you love it when people answer a question with a question? Or how about like Pastor Brock, when I ask him something, he always seems to answer it with a story. Ah, oh, that reminds me of. <laughs> so crazy. They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. That's speaking of Jesus' death. No one, no one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new patch will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Wow, so a lot of analogies going on there, right? You have, you have wine, you have weddings, you have sewing. I think that makes, sounds like a great women's retreat. Um, but if you remember back, Look at verse 18 again. What was the thing that started this whole, all these different analogies? It was a question, right? It was a question about fasting. And the question again was, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So question, how many of you fast regularly? Raise your hand if you fast regularly. Okay. Couple people. Those are the people that do keto, right? They're like intermittent fasting, man. It's so cool. You got to get into it, right? Um, how many of you fast regularly, let's say twice a week for spiritual purposes? Raise your hand. See, nobody raised their hand. Why is that? 
It's because we don't do that in our culture. But I want you to picture for a moment a culture where self-denial and fasting are regular practices. Imagine that culture. Now imagine a society where self-denial and fasting are not only regular practices, they are celebrated. Picture that culture. That's first century Judaism. That's Jesus' day we're talking about right now. Now when we look back to the scene that that we were reading in Mark uh, chapter 2, what's happening here? Well, the Pharisees and all the rabbis and the disciples, they're fasting. And Jesus' disciples are, are munching on In-N-Out Burger or something like that. But they're not participating in the fast. They must have really stood out at that, that moment. They must have really looked out of place at that moment. Was Jesus against fasting, though? No, he was not. How did he begin his ministry? With a 40-day fast. And Jesus also taught on fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, when you fast, not if you fast. So he assumed that fasting was a normal practice, something good, something that we should be doing. His only instruction was, do it with the right heart. Don't do it to be seen by other people. So what else does the Bible have to say about fasting? Well, fasting um, in the Bible was, there's lots of different examples of fasting. Fasting, uh, one of the typical practices is that when you were grieving, when you had loss, when somebody died in your family, you would fast, you wouldn't eat. And fasting was also a sign of repentance. So people would fast um, when they were sorrowful for their sins. But mostly when you see fasting in the Bible, you see it really coupled together, joined together with prayer. It was something that you did as a devotion to God. It was special. It was meant to connect you with the presence of God. Now, so when we look at this whole picture here and these three questions that Jesus, or these four questions that Jesus was asked, we can see, really, we can see right through their motives. And these questions had more to do with tradition than devotion. So tradition, right? We, have all, we all have, we have traditions. Yeah, are traditions good or bad? Good, right? It depends. You can have some unhealthy traditions. I, I have a, we have a tradition in our family. We, um, we love to eat uh, tamales at Christmas time. Yeah, yeah, I'm going I'm to get hungry right now. We love to eat tamales at Christmas time. That's, that's, a, that's kind of a Southern California thing. People do that. Uh, I'm Irish, so next week... This coming Thursday is uh, St. Patrick's Day. Now, traditionally, St. Patrick's Day is uh, a time where people really, really get hammered. And uh, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) 
But I would say that's a bad tradition. So traditions are neither good nor bad. It really depends. Does the church have traditions? Yeah, the church has lots of traditions. Just think, you know, for 2,000 years, you develop a lot of traditions. But traditions come and they go. Think about all the traditions in the church. I'm going to list a few here. Style of music. Style of music. That's certainly uh, a tradition. Not every church has the same style of music, and it changes over time. So here's one. Service start time. You know, you got to start, right? At, it's got to be at 9 o'clock, right? It's got to be at 10 o'clock or, or Wednesday at night. It has to be at a certain time. Communion frequency. Do you do it uh, once a week, every Sunday? Do you do it on the first Sunday of the month? Do you do it every quarter? What do you do? You know, and the Bible, when you look at the Bible, it's not so, uh, it's not so uh, specific on what, what you do. The style of communion is also. What about flags on the stage? People have had flags on the stage, Christian flags, the American flag. Having a cross on the building. That's certainly a tradition. What about, uh, what about if Christmas falls on a Sunday? Christmas Day. It does that every seven years. <laughs> it's going to do that this year. What if we don't have a service? Are we required to have one? If we don't, are we less holy? So traditions. Now, for a moment, ask yourself, how many of those traditions are actual biblical mandates or biblical requirements. Think about that. Style of music, communion frequency, think about that. And think about the other traditions that you like or dislike. Are they biblical requirements? For those of us who have been in church for a long time, we know that these traditions can sometimes cause arguments and divisions. Think about that for a moment. Think about how many arguments and divisions and, and church fractions have happened because, not because necessarily of the, the traditions, but because of how we hold on to them. Think about that for a moment. So one of the, uh, one of the big traditions, of course, and the big things that are causes to, uh, kind of contention, right, is style of music. That's the big one, right? Style of music. We called that the worship wars in the 1990s. <laughs> it was like choruses or hymns, choruses, right? Drums. Oh, we can't have drums in the church. And, uh, uh, but when you think about it, if you look even at church history, you know, we belong to a denomination, uh, not for much longer, but the RCA, Reformed Church in America, they had a church split in 1857 over style of music. Now, it had nothing to do with the drums or the guitar in 1857, but it was one group only wanted to sing out of the hymns. That's it, just the hymns. I mean, just the, the psalms. One group only wanted to sing the psalms. That was called the Psalter. And another group thought it was great to sing new songs, hymns, and things like that. And so the church split, and they started an entire 
new denomination called the Christian Reformed Church. Just think about that. Over music. And I love hymns, though. I do. I grew up as a teenager singing them. Long hair. (laughs) Singing in the choir. Uh, Just as a side note, the first time I sang uh, in a choir, I was in this little Baptist church, and I show up, and I'm wearing this surfer shirt, Mr. Zog's Sex Wax. (laughs) And uh, my youth pastors were like, "Uh, Dan, I didn't know any better, right? I just wore my clothes, concert t-shirts, surfer t-shirts, and they're like, hey, we got another shirt for you. (laughs) But I grew up singing hymns. I loved them. But get this, I wouldn't go back to singing uh, hymns out of a hymnal with a piano. Why? Because we would lose an entire new generation of people, right? God never wants our church traditions to become kingdom limitations, right? Amen? God never wants church traditions to become kingdom limitations. Besides that, we want to sing a new song to God. We can sing those songs, and I love the way we do them. We, we modernize them, and Aaron does such a beautiful job weaving them into multiple songs, even pulling out the old Keith Green song, which I love this morning. Yeah, it's good stuff. My son Colin is, uh, he just turned 17, and all of his friends now are starting to drive, which is really scary, okay? And uh, so they're all starting to drive, and one of his buddies just got his license. And the day he got his license, he wanted to celebrate. And to celebrate, he's like, I'm going to go to Domino's Pizza. So he gets in his car, first time out, by himself, driving. I'm going to Domino's Pizza. So he's driving to Domino's Pizza, not very far from his house, and he runs a red light. First day having his license. First time out by himself. He gets pulled over by the cop, and the officer asks him, why did you run that red light? And he answered, I was too busy looking in my rearview mirror. And this is what's happening right now in Jesus' day. This is what's happening at this moment. Jesus is here. They've been praying for their Messiah for nearly a thousand years, and he's here right now. He's healing people. A, A man who was paralyzed for 38 years picked up his mat and began to walk. And I imagine he was probably leaping and jumping and celebrating. This kind of thing is happening. We just read about somebody with a shriveled hand was healed by Jesus. Jesus is driving out demons, people who are tormented by evil. And Jesus is setting them free. He's restoring them. And the people, many of them, were missing it. They didn't recognize it because they were looking in the rearview mirror. 
in verse 19, this powerful uh, uh, analogy, this powerful image that Jesus gives us. He calls himself the bridegroom here. And he's, he's saying to, to the, his listeners, do you want to get an idea of who I am? I'm more like the bridegroom than anything. Do you want to know who you are, what it means to be a Christian? Well, it's more like a wedding feast than anything else. And Jesus was proclaiming this. This is what it meant. He was telling us something about himself. He was telling us something about who we are as his followers. Jesus is telling us something that that we need to know that's important with our relationship to God. When he says, I am the bridegroom, he's saying, I am God. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord God. That's what he's saying. He's telling them that he's the bridegroom. And they knew this because they were familiar with the Old Testament and throughout the Old Testament, Jesus portrays himself, or I'm, I'm sorry, God portrays himself as the bride, bridegroom and his people as the bride. This is powerful. Weddings, bridegroom, bride. This is the picture of Jesus and the church. Jesus loves his people. Two weeks, ago, two weeks from now, I'm going to be at a wedding, and uh, a good friend of mine asked me to marry him and his fiance. I'm really excited about this, a little nervous. You know, weddings can be kind of intense, right? So I'm much more comfortable doing funerals. <laughs> but weddings, there's all these expectations. But I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. And... Uh, it's, it's really cool because um, it's at a very cool place, Puerto Vallarta. So, yeah, I know you guys feel sorry for me, but it's in Puerto Vallarta, and uh, it's at this beautiful resort, right? Do you think we're going to be fasting at this wedding? No, no way. It's all-inclusive. Of course not. <laughs> I'm going to come back, I'm going to be like 10 pounds heavier, okay? There's not going to be any fasting at this. Because weddings are a time of celebration. They're a time of feasting. And Jesus gives us that powerful analogy, that powerful illustration. But he also gives us a few others. He says that... No one sews a new patch on an old garment. And he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. What is he saying there? He's saying that the old is incompatible with the new. You see, Jesus didn't come to just patch up the old covenant system of rules and regulations. No. He came to fulfill them. He didn't come just to upgrade all the promises of God to 2.0. He didn't come just to do reformation. No. He came 
to fulfill them. And we see this in Jeremiah 31. The prophet Jeremiah spoke very clearly about this in Jeremiah 31. 31. It says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by their hand to lead them out of the Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God is making a new covenant. Jesus is making a new covenant. He's making a new covenant in his blood. We celebrate that with communion. This new covenant. Now, again, back to wine. I've never been to a winery before. I know they have a lot of them in Temecula. It's like the, what, it's like the, the Napa Valley of the Inland Empire now. Uh, but I've never been there. I'm pretty sure, though, they don't put wine into wineskins anymore. They put it into barrels. But during that time, they put wine into wineskins. And old wineskins were brittle. They, were, they, they, they wouldn't expand or anything. They were fragile. They were rigid. And that's why Jesus here gives this illustration. Because when, when the new wine is in a new wineskin, it expands, right, as, it, as during the fermentation process. And that's what Jesus is telling us here, is that he's doing something new. Up to this point, it seems like their response here, or this, this, this whole thing that Jesus is talking about, has a lot to do with uh, traditions, about legalism. You could, you could, if you just read it on the surface, you would get that. But this morning, I want you to know it has so much more. It's so much more than that. It's so much bigger than that. Jesus' response is so much better than that. His response here is about the human heart. He's diagnosing the human heart. The only way to experience the abundant life that Jesus is offering, this is what he's telling us, is that we need new, pliable, fresh hearts. God wants to do a work in our lives, church. And the only way that we can receive it is to be like those new wineskins. He's always doing a new thing. We just need pliable hearts. We need willing hearts. Ask any doctor. The most crucial step in diagnosing and finding the cure in healing someone is having the right diagnosis. So here's God's diagnosis of our hearts. Have this up on the screen. Our hearts have many other loves besides God. They do. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts are also broken and lie to us. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. 
Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Our hearts are filled with anxiety. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Psalm 139, 23. This is the condition of the human heart without God. Anxious, fearful, broken, deceived, loving other gods. But I want you to know, the bridegroom is here. Jesus is here. And he wants to bring healing. He wants to bring wholeness. Jesus is here. And he's saying that my love for you has no limits. My love for you, church, people, has no conditions. My love for you will never grow cold. My love for you will never fail. My love for you is permanent. If you walk away with anything today, know that God loves you. God loves you. And his love for you will never fail. We see the fulfillment of this in Ezekiel 36, 26, about this this new heart. He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a, a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Man, that is such a powerful analogy, but it's true. It's real. That's what God does. He did that in my life. 36 years ago, he removed my heart of stone, and he continues to do that. That's what's so good about these promises, church, is we often see them only as a work that that happened at salvation. But you know you live out your salvation every single day. So God didn't just want to give you a new heart when you when you come to him the first time. He wants to give you a new heart every single day. He wants to put his spirit in you every day. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. This is the work that he paid for with his blood and his life. And when you surrender your life to him, God will change your heart. He will give you a new heart. The Holy Spirit will come inside you. God himself will take up residence in you. And the Holy Spirit will change you. You'll be transformed. You'll have new desires. You'll have new loves. You'll have new passions. You'll have new dreams. God will do that. John came to baptize with water, but Jesus came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what God wants to do in our lives. That's what he can do every single day. Amen. In 1906, a revival broke out in downtown Los Angeles. 
It was later called the Azusa Street Revival. I love revival history. And uh, at this revival, during this time, many people were healed. Thousands came to know Jesus. Two, uh, two huge denominations were birthed out of this movement, out of this revival. Foursquare and Assemblies of God and a few others. God did an amazing work during this time. Later, in the 1970s, another br revival broke out called the Jesus Movement. And it was crazy at that time because all of these hippies, all of these bare feet people, all of these people who loved rock music were now flooding into churches. But the churches didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know what to do with these barefoot, long-haired people. And a Southern California pastor by the name of Chuck Smith said, come on in. Come on in. We have a place for you. And that's where Calvary Chapel was born. And I remember, because I went to Calvary Chapel for many years, and I remember listening, and I had a privilege to listen to Pastor Chuck Smith. And uh, amazing pastor, somebody I deeply respect. And he was telling a story one time of how he went to one of these, um, these churches on Azusa Street. And he visited the church, and he noticed that there were, there were glass cases with wheelchairs in them. There were glass cases with crutches where people couldn't walk or were, were somewhat lame, and they, and they couldn't walk normally. They had to have crutches. And as he walked around in amazement, it also dawned on him, where are the new crutches? Where are the new wheelchairs? And I think that's a great question. And if Chuck Smith, again, somebody I deeply respect, if he was alive today, and I had a chance to ask him a question, I would ask him, Chuck, where are all the new hippies? Where are all the new uh, afterglows that Calvary Chapel really, really was blessed with? They would do these services, and people would come to know Jesus, and then afterwards they would go and they would allow people to move in the gifts of the Spirit. So I'd ask him, where are the new hippies? I think those are important questions. And my point is this morning, my point is, is that revivals come and go. Those huge moves of God, those are a sovereign work of God. Those aren't something that we can manufacture. That's not something I can control, but I can control this. I can control seeking God every day. I can open up my heart every day and say, Lord, fill me with your new wine. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Do a work in me. Show me my gifts. Show me what I'm called to do and use me. That can happen every single day. We don't need a revival. 
although I pray that we have one. We were at, um, last two weeks, we were at, um, out in the streets in Pomona. We took teams from Rooted. And man, there were, there were groups of people, and I just was standing in the back, and I was watching our people who have come through Rooted ministering to other people, praying over them, prophesying over them, leading them to Jesus, like telling them about the gospel. And I just stood back and I watched, and I was like, yes, Lord, that's, that's the new wine. That's what you're talking about here. And God is doing that here in this church. He's doing amazing things. People are coming to faith in Christ. But you know what? He has so much more to do. He's not done with us. He is not done with us. We are just getting started. And it's by God's grace that he has poured out. I've been in church for a long, long time. And I have longed for this day when, when a move of God, I don't, I don't need to see it in the entire world. I don't need to see it in the entire California. I just want to see it in my own life, in the lives of my brothers and sisters in this church. I want to see it here in this neighborhood, in the preserve. That's all I care about. God is good. Imagine this morning what that would look like if we just gave God more of our hearts. And so at this time, I want to invite the worship team back up to lead us in our response time. And I'd also invite our prayer team up. And I want to close with a couple of questions. And these questions aren't you know, I'm not, we're not trying to manufacture anything. They're just real questions. When we come to a passage like this, it's so important that we don't think of ourselves as like, oh, that's not me. I'm not like the Pharisees. Because it's so easy to be like that. That's our hearts bent. And so one of the questions I want to ask you is, where is your heart today? Is it soft? Is it pliable? Man, God, give me a new heart. Soften my heart. You know, one of my prayers lately has been, and it's very simple, change me, God. Just come into my life, change me. Get down deep inside in those things, those insecurities, those fears, those things that, that hold me back and change me. Second question, what do you need to let go of? Is there anything that you're holding on so tightly that it's interfering with God really just releasing you into a new work? And finally, what new thing do you want God to do in your life? God wants to give you some amazing vision for your life. He, wants, he has a calling for you. What new thing does God want to do? And we're going to sing this song, New Wine, which I totally, I'm totally in love with this song. I love it. And, and the, um, the chorus, I think, goes something like this. Make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be.
I came here with nothing, but all you have given me, Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Make that your prayer this morning. Amen.